Hi, my name is Christine, and I'm your host for the Bites on podcast. Ding! Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you are a new listener, welcome. If you're an old listener, hello again. Um, and regardless, what a time to be alive it is. There's a lot happening. Um, since we last spoke, the global pandemic is um, now a global pandemic. So I hope everyone is staying well and healthy and sane and remembering to just keep calm and be kind to one another. I've been going back and forth about how much I want to talk about COVID-19 and the repercussions of what's happening right now, but I think if you're a human living on the planet, you know what's going on. There's so much news. There's so much on social media that's circulating right now. So much of it is the unknown and everyone's scared. But I think for today's episode, we're just going to acknowledge the elephant in the room that that is the pandemic. And we're going to just choose to move right along, okay? So... Um, for today's episode, I thought I would do something a little bit more fun, given the situation we're in, and uh, I kind of put out a poll to get an idea of what you guys want me to talk about. So, the people have spoken, and uh, welcome to episode 8. It is going to be like a spark notes, highlight reel of, you know, what I've learned about love so far. Meanwhile, me also answering your questions and such. Um, I hope you find it entertaining and if the goal is achieved, helpful. So without further ado, here is episode eight with me, the retired guru. I just want to preface the episode by saying that um, I'm not an expert in love. The title of retired love guru was something my friends gave me and um, I don't know. It's I have a very love-hate relationship with love and everything I've experienced. Um, it's like one of those elusive things where you, when you think you have a grasp of it, and when you think you understand it, something happens and then boom, you feel like you know nothing at all. And I don't know, I think like love's supposed to be that way to an extent. You know, people like philosophers, historians, painters, musicians, poets, like all these cool cats have been, uh, you know, been fascinated by the idea of love and been trying to understand and express it since the start of time. And Unlike biology and physiology, that's like concrete, predictable, and quantifiable. All those things are like easy to understand. For me personally, things that are not concrete, predictable, and quantifiable, it's really hard for me to put a box around it and understand it. That's just the way my brain works. And growing up, or growing, yeah, I guess growing up, I don't, I didn't really have many good templates of what uh, a healthy relationship should look like per se so I had no real foundation of what love's supposed to look like what is it supposed to sound like what does it feel like and so on 
So if you guys are from like a secure kind of type relationship or attachment style, I really, really think you're blessed and you gotta hang on to that shit. It wasn't until like my first serious relationship that I realized how poorly unequipped I was to handle love. So that was when like my guru days kind of started because I started reading about it. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos. I listened to a ton of podcasts and all my friends would kind of come to me and be like, yo, uh, you seem to know shit about this. Uh, you're single and have so much time. Uh, wanna, listen, wanna listen to my problems? And I'm like, okay, cool. So that's kind of how I learned about love, if that makes sense. Even then, like, I tried to understand and research it in order to apply it to the relationship I was in at the time. But again, you think you know something and boom, life pulls a fast one on you and you realize you don't. So um, the demise of the relationship was very explosive, painful, and confusing for everyone involved. So that's why I think, like, it's like one of those things that you can't really prepare for and you can't fully understand to navigate it but we can talk about that another time so let's get started um, before we get into things i want to say if you want to make this a quarantine drinking game please take a shot for every time i say stephanie's name good luck i hope your liver is ready question one what is the honeymoon phase? What do you do after it's over? Thank you, Kathy, for sending in the question. Uh, honeymoon phase. I've actually done a little bit of reading about this before. Um, I read this book called The Molecule of More by Daniel Lieberman and Michael Long. And their book was pretty much just about um, the chemical dopamine that's in the brain. Dopamine is classically known as the chemical that is in charge of your reward system. It drives you to be curious. It drives you to explore. It drives you to seek out certain things in your environment. And it also conveniently is one of those feel-good hormones that is associated with love and infatuation. So during the honeymoon phase or this romantic kind of love period, things are peaking they're peaking and what i find funny is that um dopamine itself and all the other hormones they kind of spike between like the 9 to 12 month mark and then right after that things kind of die down slowly and conveniently that's also uh and the amount of time it takes to grow and raise a baby and i think evolution kind of programmed us to be highly attached to our partners during this time because you know everything comes down to procreation um so the honeymoon phase is this weird period where couples kind of are just all about each other and things are just novel and exciting and and from what I've experienced from the honeymoon phase, like it's super easy to ignore the red flags and let things slide because you have such like a romanticized image of the other person and they're so perfect. 
when the hormones die off and all of a sudden you start you start bickering you start kind of getting annoyed by the other person and i think that's like the distinction and the time mark when you realize like oh shit i am out of the honeymoon phase with this person and yeah like the, the your relationship is kind of put into question a little bit and it always like starts with like small things first like it could be um let's say you're driving the car together and the music's really loud because your partner listens to music really loud before during the honeymoon phase you'd be like oh who gives a damn i'll just get permanent hearing loss that's just so cute ha 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 love love and here's another good example so you know maybe stephanie likes to sleep with the electric blanket um, Christine sweats perfusively everywhere all the time. In the honeymoon phase, Christine used to lay there all night in a pool of her blood, sweat, and tears because she wants to cuddle. But then now, you know, now when the honeymoon phase is over, um, I don't know, like Christine starts to think maybe Stephanie should turn the blanket down, all the way down. How about that? Right? So does Christine get annoyed sometimes? Yes. Does Christine tolerate it? Yeah. So, hashtag save Christine from the electric blanket 2020. Anyway, so yes, I think there is a weird distinct point when you exit the honeymoon phase and shit gets real, man. It gets really real. And you guys individually and as a unit might have this weird identity shift. And that's probably like one of the reasons why I think some couples don't make it past the one year mark. And it's this weird challenging period of uncertainty and doubt. Though I think it's normal, I think to survive it, you really got to have good communication skills and good conflict resolution skills. Um, both parties need to learn how to compromise and accept the other person. And just, you know, look at your partner and be like, this this bitch ain't a Greek god or goddess, but I love her anyway. And finally, I think when you're out of the honeymoon phase, it's like this pivotal point when you really have to commit to the relationship and make sure you're both on the same page and you really got to buckle down and get ready to put in work and prove to your partner that like, hey, I'm going to stick around and we're going to work things out. And yes, some days you want to strangle them and maybe destroy and hide their electric blanket. But, 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 in order for success in a relationship, you have to compromise by sleeping with maybe one leg sticking out of the blanket in order to thermoregulate because you love the other person and care about their comfort and well-being. Question two. What are your views on marriage? Are you going to get married? Amanda. Thank you very much for submitting the question, Amanda. Um, ooh, tough questions. Um, if you asked me during the bachelorette days of my life about my views on marriage, I'd be like, ew, hell no. Love your independence. Love all the money you're going to make and save for yourself. You can just raise a dog and you'll be perfectly happy in life. I don't know now. I don't want to say anything definitive, but I think my views on marriage now are a little bit more flexible. And I do think that's attributed to just finding someone who you mesh well with and potential and potentially seeing a future with them. 
Um, from my view on marriage itself, I do think to an extent it is a social construct. And to prove my point, I'm just going to dial the time backwards and we're going to do a little bit of a time travel. So if you think about back in the day, marriage was reserved for political moves, uh, truces, unions of royal people and wealth. Um, people got married for survival purposes. Back in the day, I don't think most people said like, yeah, I married this person because they're cute and they bought me flowers and I love flowers. I'm not like a historian or anthropologist, but I do think our ancestors were more concerned with having sex to procreate, increase the fitness of the herd or some kind of Darwinistic explanation. Um, last year, I read a book called How to Fall in Love with Anyone by Mandy Lynn Catron. Catron. She goes into some interesting points about the evolution of the family system, women in the workplace, and people's views on marriage and romantic love. And I want to read you an excerpt from the book. Companionate marriage. It encompasses the gender lines between men and women. For example, who is the person taking care of the family and who is in charge of bringing home the bread? Inventions like the electric washing machine and birth control were game changers that challenged women's roles and freedom. A woman was able to go to work, run a family, pursue her passions, and ask or look for what she wants in a partner. The evolution of women in the workplace essentially changed the marital system. Then in the next chapter, Manny starts talking about something called self-expressive marriage. So here's the excerpt. Now in the 21st century, we don't just want reliable co-parents and monogamous sex. We want our partners to support our self-expression and foster our personal growth. And self-expressive marriage, according to her and experts, is the more updated version of what marriage looks like today day compared to what it was back in the day which is called companionate marriages and i believe most of our parents would fall into the companionate marriage category whereas us millennials uh, we have like a set of expectations that we need from our partner now we expect our partners to be our therapists we expect them to inspire us uh, help us when we struggle, be the perfect parent, be a sexual god, be a good financial partner, and that's kind of a lot to put on one person if you really, really think about it. You know, my theory is with increased expectation comes increased disappointment or dissatisfaction. So that's kind of my approach as to explaining why divorce rates are through the roof today and marriage itself is like wh what is that anymore these days and what does it mean to most people is it worth it and to add on to that point with a tangent have you guys ever heard of the phrase a diamond is forever it was the slogan of a mining diamond company uh, called De Beers, and it was copyrighted by Marie Frances Garetti. So, diamond rings at one point were never a thing. The value of a diamond was not that significant, and it wasn't until this huge company ad campaign was put out that people started, or men rather, started to realize, like, oh crap, I gotta like buy 
my future wife a ring or some shit. So here is the excerpt that I found uh, on a website off Google. In 1938, amid the ravages of the Depression and the ramblings rumblings of war, Harry Oppenheimer, the De Beers founder's son, recruited the New York-based ad agency N.W. Ayer to burnish the image of diamonds in the United States, where the practice of giving diamond engagement rings had been unevenly gaining traction for years, but where the diamonds sold were increasingly small and low quality. Meanwhile, the price of diamonds was falling around the world. The folks at Ayer set out to persuade young men that diamonds, and only diamonds, were synonymous with romance, and that the measure of a man's love, even his personal and professional success, was directly proportional to the size and quality of the diamond he purchased. Young women, in turn, had to be convinced that courtship was concluded invariably with a diamond. And as a fun fact, between 1939 and 1979, De Beers' wholesale diamond sales in the United States increased from $23 million to $2.1 billion. And over the four decades, the company's ad budget went from $200,000 to $10 million a year. I'll leave you with that. And um, whether you think marriage is a social construct or not. And to answer the question of whether I'll get hitched one day, I think I'm open to it, but I also have my reservations. Question three. Are the traits you love in a person traits that you see in yourself? Could you imagine dating someone exactly like yourself? Why or why not? Question submitted by Christy. Thank you very much, Christy, for sending in the question. Uh, to answer that question, uh, let's see. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Stephanie and I were uh, platonic friends when we first started talking. Uh, we talked about our pessimistic views on love in the world. We had been equally victims and perpetrators in love at that point. Mm. We had similar views on healthcare, marriage, education, family, and I think we were are just very simple people, so we click very well in that sense. And I remember I remember being so drawn to her because we were so similar. And there's been so many times she'd say, Shut up, get out of my head. And I'd be like, Yeah, you get out of my head. Why are you thinking the same things I do? I don't know. Maybe one day we can get her on the podcast and she can answer the question herself. But I think I fell in love with her when I sent her this Spotify playlist that I catered towards her. And I fell in love with her because she was able to listen to the music and appreciate the cryptic messages I I was trying to portray. I realized in that moment that we listened to music and felt music in the same way. And I remember thinking, oh my god, she gets it, she gets me, she's my perfect fit. Uh, And then I met her in person and I was like, yo, who is this cutie patootie? Um, So I think, to answer your question, like I think similarities help get our foot in the door when it comes to dating and relationships, but 
I don't know. More more so now, I think it's like our differences and the challenges that we have with each other that kind of keeps me around. So my answer to the question is yes, I think it's important that you should date someone very similar to you because you need to be able to agree on certain things and see the world um, in the same way when you're moving along together. But also a degree of differences allows for challenge and growth. Um, If there is too much of a difference between you and the other person and you don't agree on the fundamentals of life, then I see that as being potentially problematic. And my final, final point, um, Steph can probably attest for this, and I'll be the first person to raise my hand up. I am a classic narcissist, so I do not think, to answer the question directly, I do not think I would be able to date someone exactly the same as me because it'd be like two fires wanting to be the biggest fire, and it's just not going to be pretty. Question four, do you believe that being codependent is bad? It seems inevitable sometimes. Question submitted by Chandler. Thank you, Chandler, for submitting the question. Um, So I knew a lot of people who were completely involved and into each other in undergrad, and they hung out all the time, went to classes together, moved in with each other, had a joint bank account together, and were just like crazy about one another. And I think... That was a little bit of a red flag early on when, you know, you're in your early 20s when things are so new and you're highly invested in this one person and your your sense of day-to-day or your identity was associated with this person. I think that's a little bit of a red flag and that's when codependency might be bad. But I don't know, like now that I think about it, like there's nothing wrong with being dependent on another person because you know, you and I and most of the people listening to this podcast probably are a little bit closer to, to their late 20s and approaching 30, the big 3-0. So things like, you know, moving in with your partner, naturally you will be codependent with them because you coexist with each other. And when you're dating for such a long time, it's inevitable that you rely on each other for certain things, whether it's physically, emotionally, or spiritually. As long as you know, you guys have healthy boundaries and you guys are functional human beings outside from one another. Let's say like you have your own career, own goals, own interests or friend groups. I think that's okay. So is it inevitable? Yes. Is it bad? Maybe, depending on how old you are and what life stage you're at. But I also want to share something I learned from therapy recently. Codependency is a behavioral condition in a relationship where one person enables another person's addiction, poor mental health, immaturity, irresponsibility, or underachievement. Among the core characteristics of codependency is an excessive reliance on another person for approval and a sense of identity. So in therapy, I learned this concept um, about triangulation um, and what it's like to be in a codependent, a real codependent relationship. So the three points on the triangle is you have one person being the victim, the perpetrator, and the rescuer. So those are the three points. And um, we know that being in a codependent relationship is really healthy because, you know, your sense of self and your mental health is 
determined by this other person and i i don't want to go too far into it but this is kind of the classic um image people use to describe like abusive relationships um in in an abusive relationship usually um, there's a victim and a perpetrator there may or may not be a rescuer and the roles of each person within the triangle can switch depending on the situation but that's a whole nother tangent um to summarize, I don't think codependency is a bad thing. I think, you know, healthy boundaries need to be made in a relationship. And if you start enabling each other to not be the best versions of yourselves, then that's a little bit more of a red flag and you really got to troubleshoot about what's, what's going on. So when I think about this, I like to think about like the party scenario. So let's say you and your SO go to a party together. Like, are you guys comfortable being separated at the party? Let's say, like, you guys have your own group of friends and you leave. Or if, like, your partner has a group of friends and they go talk to their friends, um, do you feel comfortable being alone with yourself? Or do they feel comfortable with you being alone by yourself? I think that's a really good indicator because, like, things like social anxiety not social anxiety, sorry, like separation anxiety, that can definitely kind of hint at something bigger that's going on um, when you can't be physically detached from this person because that also probably means you're emotionally attached to this person and you can't be alone. Does that make sense? I hope that helps. Hi, welcome to the intermission segment of the Biotonal Podcast. This is where typically advertisements, sponsor plugs are put in a podcast, but currently we have zero sponsors. So I'm just going to use this time to say thank you for tuning in, guys. And we would also really appreciate it if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Also, follow us across all the socials at Bitonal Podcast. If you have any ideas, feedback, comments, advice, stories you want to share, drop us a line at bitonalpodcast at gmail.com. That's all I really have to say. Okay, back to the main segment. Question 5. Do we ever get over our exes, especially if they're still a decent person? This question was submitted by Christina. Thank you very much, Christina, for submitting the question. Um, I think it, to narrow things down, I'm going to divide breakups into two categories. We have the one-sided breakup and we have the mutual breakup. Now, starting off with the first one, let's say you guys broke up because one of you realized that they no longer feel in love with the other person. An example of that was maybe when Gigi said, I lost my butterflies on Love is Blind, the Netflix reality TV show that's absolute trash, but I'm totally in love with. Um, see, that's a tough situation, I think, to get over, but I think it's also possible to get over it because it's justifiable um, while you guys break up. So if you know, your partner loses love, you could think, um, I deserve someone who actually loves me the same way. You can think, it's their loss, not mine. You could think, if I love this person and they're not happy with me or if there's something wrong with me and they're telling me this, I, maybe I do have to let them go because I love them. 
you know, and like sometimes setting the bird free might be the most noble and sacrificial thing to do in love. And um, yeah, difficult to move on when someone loses their feelings, but I do think it's possible to move on. Uh, example two of a one-sided breakup, um, let's say they cheated on you and there's some kind of infidelity involved. Man, like that's probably the biggest betrayal here, but again, you can move on because you could think and justify, damn, I dodged a bullet, or they didn't know what they were looking for to begin with, I need to find someone who knows what they want. To summarize one-sided breakups, I think it's very challenging and it's hard to move on, but it is possible because to a degree, it's justifiable. Which leads us into category two, uh, mutual breakups. Let's say, for example, y'all broke up because one of you was moving away to New York City for a big career move. Uh, you both still love and care about one another, but uh, sometimes you just gotta be realistic in life. And I've had a lot of friends kind of in similar situations, like let's say one of them moved away for school or one person had to stay in the city for their job, like it's tough. It's tough because the love is still there and the love is still strong and I argue this is probably the most difficult one to move on from and it may be something you don't move on from because uh, I know how my brain works, like there's no underlying reason why you guys broke up and there's no factor within the situation that you can modify and change and truly it's one of those things where it's like yeah life and timing life and timing got between you two and there's nothing you can do about it I'm not gonna lie, I haven't been through many breakups in my life because most of the experiences I've had were very short-lived and, you know, the fire didn't get to that point where, let's say, like, we, we split that I would feel an impact in my immediate life. Um, but I've seen a lot of my friends go through, go through some shit, you know, and uh, I've given the advice of, like, you need to acknowledge what you had with this person um, and acknowledge it well. So I think as humans, like we have really shitty memories and sometimes we are hyper-focused on like the bad things in the relationship after um, you break up and we replay them, we replay them, we revisit them and it's, it's hurtful every time when you think about the bad things in a relationship and why you guys didn't work and over time, like through the replays of these memories, like things can get kind of convoluted a little bit so we have to be very... Um, I guess, realistic and rational when we look back at certain things that we want to move on from. Quite easily, positive experiences can be easily overlooked. So my advice is like, if you want to reminisce about the relationship and replay things, focus on the good things because that will definitely help you move on. Um, you know, think about things like, what did I learn from this relationship? What did I learn from this other person? It would be stupid to think like you didn't, you didn't learn one thing from this person or they didn't make you better in a certain way. Um, and yeah, so like <laughs> the alternative is like, if you have no memories to, 
good memories to look back on and they were a complete asswipe, then I recommend a strategy called out of sight, out of mind. And that includes block, delete, and cancel, girl. Get them off the social media and do a detox. Get a cleanse. Scrub it clean. Get on Tinder and move on. No, I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, like out of sight, out of mind, I think that really helps. Like separating yourself from the other person, not being tempted to check up on them is helpful. And, um, my added advice is to get back on Tinder. This is controversial. Some, some people are like, no, don't, don't get a rebound relationship. But I mean, like once you like have some time to think about it and move on, I think it is important to get back in the game real fast and find the next best thing. Also to kind of help you figure things out, um, I think there are three reasons why people linger and are not able to move on. These are my theories. So one, there was a lack of clear closure and communication. Um, Theory two, idealizing or over-romanticizing a relationship or partner. And theory three, there were some kind of like unclear boundaries. So ask yourself the following questions. If someone asked me, how did the breakup go? And asked my ex the same question, would we tell the same story? Are we on the same page? Do we both feel heard and respected in the breakup? Question two, am I holding on to this relationship for another subconscious reason? Do I love the idea of the person or do I love the actual person in the relationship we had? And question three, uh, did me and my ex define the clear boundaries between us with regards to do you want to be friends? Do we not want to be friends? Should we contact each other? Should we not contact each other? Just some things to think about. My final answer to the question is, I think it's okay to carry someone in your heart after a breakup in a relationship, and especially if they're a good person. Like, I don't think being friends and being amicable is impossible. Like, I think it's possible that romantic love can, you know, transition into friendship, let's say. Um, But I think it does take take a lot of time and a lot of acceptance and communication uh, and understanding yourself. Um, And looking back, like for the people I have made peace with in the past, uh, I know that, or we know that if we ever needed anything from each other, we would be there. To quote Little Mix, shout out to my ex, you're really quite the man. You made my heart break and that made me who I am. I hate that song, but hey, it works. Question six, do you believe in soulmates? From Anonymous. Thank you, whoever you are, Anonymous, for sending in the question. Um, Short answer is um, no. Uh, I do not believe in soulmates. I say that with conviction. Um, I believe you make someone into your soulmate. I don't know, like, I think, like, how many people are there in the world currently? A lot of billions. It would, it would be, like, statistically unreasonable to say, like, yeah, there, I can only be with one person. 
And if you were to do the numbers game, like if you factor in things like age, gender, sexual orientation, location, relationship status, ethnicity, or whatever the hell else you're looking for, like the probability of you finding only one person that's compatible seems like a little bit far-fetched. And I've been there, like I've, I've, at a very young point in my life, did believe like, hey, um, this is my soulmate. If I can't be with this person, there ain't no point in me living and it has to be this person. It's dramatic, but teenagers are like that. Um, later on, in, in as I got older in undergrad, I realized like my attention span was truly like three months at a time. So within three months or within like the time you need to heal and move on like you realize like hey this is there's another equally compatible interesting person down the road and like any other kid born in the 90s like the disney movies the modern rom-coms and other narratives about love like that was what my view was shaped around and um, they all play off this idea of like the one and I think we're overly taught that true love is like supposed to be perfect, elating, sacrificial, tough, and it has to be with a, a single person. Um, yeah, like, I don't know. I, I never fully understood that concept and I didn't really get it because I think early on I was so pessimistic from the start. So, um, the things I've gathered about the one is, uh, you know, they're supposed to read your mind, completely understand you. They're supposed to, you're supposed to have perfect chemistry and compatibility. Uh, you need to feel an immediate spark upon first sight. I think uh, love at first sight is a, a strong uh, criteria that needs to be included in the one kind of love. You need to fall in love, get married with this person. You got to buy a white picket fence house, have babies, grow old with them and die. Like that's the definition of the one. And commonly so, especially in like storylines, like the, the protagonist or you have to defeat or overcome some kind of odd or obstacle in let's say like status, usually it's around. Um, and the they're like the one you end up with or that that's the the person that the per uh, the main character falls in love with uh you know like like in mean girls and stuff you know it's like the rich girl likes the poor guy the unpopular girl likes the popular guy the dumb guy likes the smart girl it's all these like opposites and it's like it's it's fictional and i think the mindset is problematic like I catch myself uh, letting this ideal and this like fictional image shape my idea of love sometimes. Like sometimes I catch myself thinking like, oh, um, I don't feel this. Why don't I feel this? Isn't this what love's supposed to look like? Um, if it, and if it doesn't fit the narrative to a T, then sometimes I think like, oh, what if this isn't love? What if this, this person's not the one? in 2020 we have like so much choice and luxury of freedom and we struggle to commit to one person anyway so i really question like is there really a right or wrong choice like i think you're supposed to just find somebody and then make them into your soulmate and understand them and learn how to love them and live with them i think if you keep chasing a soulmate and you're trying to find like, the one who's like perfectly designed for you, you're going to be very, very disappointed and you're going to be probably alone for a long time. That's what I've learned so far. 
Question 7. Why does the stigma of being labeled with a mental illness stop someone uh, from dating you? This question was submitted by Tony. Thank you, Tony, for submitting this question. Uh, I kind of, the way he worded it was a little bit confusing, so I kind of hit him up afterwards to clarify. I think Tony, what Tony was asking was, why do people choose not to date those with mental health issues? So uh, that's a really, really good question. And I thought about that a lot. And I've had some of my friends be in this situation too. How I see it is, is, End of the day, dating, the dating game is like a distribution of time, energy, and emotions and the investment of the three. Um, I think sometimes people may not choose to date someone who is struggling because like, let's say they don't have the capacity or the ability to handle someone who is struggling and that, that could be the reality of it. Or maybe, maybe they're struggling themselves or they have a lot of life situations going on. Like I don't fully blame someone for, for having that thought. Um, like some people just lack the knowledge, I think, and they don't know how to, how to support someone with like, let's say a mental health concern. So the, the example that I have for this question is, um, I had a friend in undergrad whose uh, boyfriend broke up with her because, quote, she was sad all the time. Uh, she was diagnosed with, like, really bad major depressive disorder, and she experienced things like decreased energy, decreased mood, decreased libido or sex drive, and that was, like, the, her reality at that point. And she was in therapy, she had medications and stuff, which kind of amplified uh, things like libido, which are, are important with men, I believe. And um, I don't know the full story there, but I like, I get it. Like sometimes like dating someone with a mental health issues could be challenging and taxing. So I respect that because uh, I know Stephanie dealing with my dumb ass sometimes, it's a lot on her. Uh, she doesn't have to do it, but she chooses to do it. Um, and I, I have no doubt in my mind that she, some days she's like, oh boy, I just wish Christine was so-and-so or Christine was, a little, you know, not going through this or something like that. Um, it's, it's, it can be challenging. And when you're, when you're only like going on dates and seeking out new people, I, I can see why people would be a little bit turned off by it, but, uh, I don't know, like I've always been like a mini mental health advocate to begin with. So I never really believed in this fact. And there's already so many misconceptions about love to begin with. Like people think like peop uh, people think like, oh, every person who's depressed is completely non-functional or they're completely not a pleasant person and they're unlovable people. But at the end of the day, they're, they're still just people and they have particular problems. So my advice to those who completely reject and dismiss others while dating, if they find out the other person has a mental health issue, like my answer to that is like, I think everyone has a mental health challenge to a degree. And if not at the time, at some point, your significant other or your partner or your girlfriend, boyfriend, like they're going to struggle at some point. And if you expect to date someone and never have to hold their hand during a difficult time, then you're not being realistic, buddy. Um, my advice to those who are, are rejected in dating because of their mental health issue, like girl or a guy like you know your worth uh take your time and you really got to find someone who you can be open with and lean 
and a trust to lean on to from time to time. Uh, you deserve that help from anyone in your life, but also spe specifically a partner. And you need to lay down your cards on the table and be like, this is me. This is the good things I can provide, but these are some um, things that I struggle with too and I need help with. Like, are y'all down for that? Are you down for that? Um, if not, then, you know, turn around and say ciao. Goodbye, home slice. Bye-bye for now. And then move on to the next person because there will be someone out there who understands your situation, maybe because they're struggling too, and they're able to help you and provide you the support that you need. Question eight. How did you meet Stephanie? Question submitted by James. <laughs> Thank you, James, for submitting the question. Um, uh, I think this... Uh, how, how, how did I meet... How did, um, I think it would be best if we save that question for another podcast episode. Uh, maybe we can get her on the podcast. Um, in the beginning, I was very, very hesitant because I didn't want to like exploit our relationship for the views. But I mean, who are we kidding here? I think that's what most people are a little bit interested in. So, uh, Stephanie, baby cakes, if you're listening to this episode, uh, the people want to know who you are and when you're going to bless the podcast with your presence. Um, so, you know, maybe one day after this quarantine, you and I can just have a chit chat for the podcast, eh? Um, and yeah, so I'll, I'll leave the, I'll leave the decision up to Stephanie. So that wraps up all the questions here. Um, I had a lot of questions coming in, a lot more than I expected actually. And uh, if your question wasn't included, I apologize. Um, if this episode is successful and you guys really liked it, uh, I can do this whole retired love guru shit again. And um, for those who did ask the questions, I hope I answered the question and it was kind of helpful. I have this weird tendency to ramble and I have this weird tendency to like just, again, attention span of a goldfish. So I kind of make no sense sometimes. Um, hope I helped you out. Um, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, give it a quick rating because it really helps with the whole traction and gaining traction thing and help the podcast get out there. Uh, I'm also always looking for feedback and ideas, so don't be afraid to reach out. Um, as always, um, down to chat if you want to chat. Uh, if you str if strongly disagreed with some of the things I said on this episode, also feel free to send me some hate mail. Uh, we are at Bitonal Podcast on Instagram. That's B-I-T-O-N-A-L-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. I hope I spelled that right. And our email is at bitonalpodcast at gmail.com. Um, so before I shut up, I want to leave you with some thoughts. I want to end off with some final advice and some take-home tips. So, you know, you don't, you can save some time, save some pain and suffering, and save a lot of money in therapy. So my advice above all is, um, one, to take time. I think a degree of, or a time period of singlehood is quite essential, especially if you're like, let's say an undergrad, when it's such like a transformative and transient four years of your life. Like I look back and think like, oh, I'm kind of glad that 
you know, I was on my own for the most part. I know I had a lot of like unresolved chaos and major intimacy issues and and maybe that's why I was a little bit of a like a like a fuckboy kind of and I hurt a lot of people. Um but yeah, like once I once I kind of acknowledged the destructiveness that I had in myself, I really stayed away from relationships to begin with and I spent the latter end of my um, undergrad degree getting comfortable with myself and I had a lot of time to spend with my friends and family building those relationships and the second piece of advice is uh, know thyself and to thyself be true I think that was a quote from an important person somewhere Um, I think it's really important to differentiate like what you want as a person um, and what you think you want due to let's say external factors such as friends family society and i get it that's it's one of those things where people the, the rebuttal is like so how do you know what you want if you don't explore it and um i don't know there's a fine balance of being cautious and protective of your heart and there's also a balance of like being impulsive and taking risks and um I think it's important to promise yourself that once you feel like you are ready, you're comfortable in your own skin and how you move through the world, you need to promise yourself like, hey, I'm going to grow some balls and get out there, you know, or else how are you going to know what's out there and what you want and find something. So I'll leave you off with this quote that someone told me once in a drunken stupor. It's a Meg Cabot quote. Um, The quote goes, Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something is more important than fear. The brave may not live forever, but the cautious do not live at all. Have a good day, guys.